welcome to episode number 21 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And our guest today is Documentarian Bones. Their directorial debut, Mother to Earth, dives into the mysteries of Earthbound, the unreleased North American version of Nintendo's JRPG Mother. Now, this is not to be confused with the Super Nintendo game Earthbound, which is actually the sequel. It's, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> Bones, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, okay. Uh, what is it we're talking about when we talk about Earthbound? Uh, Earthbound being Earth with the Earth and bound with a space between. Oh yes, yes. Um, the God, the spelling for that is absolutely <laughs> buck wild. Um, yeah, so Earth space bound, um, not to be confused with Earthbound <laughs> or Spacebound, or the other name for Earthbound <laughs> that was going to be Spacebound. Yep. Uh, but yeah, no. This is the uh, NES release of Mother, which was. Um, completely uh translated and localized uh ready for american release in like the early early 1990s and uh ended up getting shelved and ultimately released like 25 years later on the wii u digitally as earthbound beginnings um it's a very fascinating fascinating story um there's lots of like fans pushing for uh the release of this game uh, knowing that like the English version exists and ha- most of them having played it before it actually officially released. Um, but yeah, Mother to Earth kind of like dives into the uh, process of, of that and how that all came to be. And not only how the game came to be, but uh, how the game came to be online unofficially. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a bit of this film that talks about the um, prototypes that of the game that leaked out of Nintendo um, and got into the hands of collectors. And uh, one of which was actually like dumped the ROM for it was dumped and then put online for people to play. Um, and so people had access to it from like as early as 1998. Um before it finally came out in 2015. I think this is such a fascinating direction for a documentary or for, I mean, really for any kind of media is not just telling the story of this unreleased game, but telling the story of kind of how it became such a a weird cultural phenomenon and how people were able to play it you know, almost 20 years before Nintendo wanted you to play it. I mean, that part, like, that's not a part of video game history that I think is explored very often. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, other situations in which a game... Well, I mean, there obviously there have been a lot of unreleased games that have made it, like, onto the internet years later because somebody found a prototype or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, I think this is one of the only times that I can think of, or one of the few times that I can think of where, like, the game was then released later on because so much hype built up around the idea of playing it officially um, where like they finally saw that there was a big enough demand because of all of these people that played it uh, through, I guess, quote unquote, dubious means. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, if there had never been a, an English localization of mother on the internet, if they had never, there'd never been a cartridge found, a prototype cartridge found and dumped. Do you think Nintendo would have ever been like, yeah, let's dig up this old thing. Oh, absolutely no. not. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. not. No. Well, one of the biggest things about like this game was like earthbound hit cult classic status, uh, pretty shortly after it released, um, as in when- super Nintendo game. Yeah, the, Super Nintendo yes. game. Mother yes, 2, clarify. Super Nintendo. <laughs> so like, yeah, so like when Earthbound came out for Super Nintendo and it didn't sell super well, um, I mean, there's so much history behind like Reed Young starting You Are Now Earthbound, which then became Starman.net and like um, all of this like history behind them like rallying to try and get a release for Mother 3 um, here in America, which is still unsuccessful. Um, but 
this first game, like everybody kind of knew that it existed, but it wasn't until after Earthbound for Super Nintendo kind of started to pick up in popularity a little bit that like people found out that there was even an English version of this. Um, I don't think that people, if this hadn't leaked, like I don't think that Nintendo would have thought there was a big enough demand for it because it really is kind of a like clunky RPG. Mm, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, it's I, it, no, it's, it is okay. If, if, if you've not played RPGs of this era, this will come across as clunky. If you've played, um, for example, the first four Dragon Quests, oh yeah, um, this is a, I think, traditional RPG, and uh, I take issue with uh, the way people talk about this game in terms of its necessary grinding, etc. But oh uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's time for my soapbox on this yet. Yeah. <laughs> we can, I, I we can pocket this. I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> comes across in the documentary too though is that there there are people who are like i think sometimes people consider this game to be the worse just a, a worse version of super nintendo earthbound of i know, i consider i that is exactly my opinion and also it's a pretty decent game that doesn't require <laughs> a lot of grinding yeah um it yeah. is the it is it is essentially the the uh i would consider it you know in the, in the more uh, traditional sense sort of the the, the prototypical earthbound it is yeah. uh it is the essence uh of what i think um Itoy and company were going for ultimately that they finally realized in the sequel um yeah. is kind of how i think of this game yeah and i mean i like i still think that uh earthbound beginnings is like one of my favorite rpgs of all time um even like even knowing that Earthbound for Super Nintendo is kind of like where this led, because it really does feel a little bit like it's like a proto Earthbound for Super Nintendo. But like there are so many moments in that game that just like in the way that they set the tone and like um, the vibe of it is a lot more uh, like we mentioned in the film, but it's a lot more like a like a Steven Spielberg film almost um the music is just very like mysterious and there's all sorts of like little pieces here and there that just like even this like having black backgrounds rather than like the psychedelic battle backgrounds and stuff like that just add to like the the like mystery and intrigue of it in a way that i don't think that earthbound for super nintendo ever really like attained yeah and and i think that's fair and and i think it's you know if you if you examine this game in its time and place, I mean, you know, had it come out, it would have been the cult classic that the sequel was here, right? Like it's yeah. it's uh, it 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 kind of changed the way that we think of JRPGs uh, in terms of you know their setting being in something more analogous to the real world, um, in terms of being able to be. Uh, spontaneous and and kind of funny like it's i would i wouldn't say that it's a parody of the dragon quest games <laughs> i i would say that it's you know very much it, it's it's someone who i mean i don't i don't actually know but i i suspect that itoi was a dragon quest fanatic yes and that uh he wanted to make uh a dragon quest in his style and and he and you know the the result was earthbound yeah. Oh, yeah. There's like there are even direct references um, <laughs> that were removed in the localization to Dragon Quest um, that like that was sort of like a big part of Itoi's inspiration was through playing Dragon Quest and then thinking about the like the connection of like it's like it's like the cross between Dragon Quest and like a coming of age story for teenagers um, or like young kids. Um I also think that there's a lot of uh I think there's something really fascinating about the fact that like in a genre that was so dominated by like fantasy that this game really sort of broke out and was like no I want to I want to make a game that's about like just a kid like going around the country and like fighting things that you would encounter in a modern setting you know so the the original mother was uh I don't have sales numbers or anything but was a success in Japan. Yes. Um and 
Nintendo of America um, was, as we as we discussed, localizing it for the U.S. Um, you you spoke to a video game historian uh, who kind of you know explained in the film um, that this would have been the <laughs> so, who the, was the, the, joke, the joke is it was me fault yeah me. I, I, I'm in the film um, so yeah I, I kind of explained in the film that and, and this is true and I think this is a good way to think about this that like this is Nintendo of America's third attempt to convince us players to play jrpgs because um minoru arakawa the president of nintendo of america at the time you know he's looking at japanese sales he's looking at japanese trends he's seeing people lining up on whatever day it was tuesday or wednesday for you know like to buy the new dragon quest and he's thinking you know players here aren't different than players there they just don't know what these games are yet. Yeah. Um, so NOA localized, they, they licensed from Square, the original Final Fantasy, and localized it here. They licensed from Enix, uh, the original Dragon Quest, released it here as Dragon Warrior. Pumped the heck out of him, right? Like he's trying yeah. to uh, basically create RPG literacy in America. Uh, by not only releasing these games, but using Nintendo Power, which was, you know, in you know, over a million homes. To, I mean, there there was yeah. an issue. I mean, I was a subscriber at the time. There's an issue of Nintendo Power that came and you only got one every month that literally the whole issue was a guide to Final Fantasy. <laughs> you know, like, like that's how much they were forcing you to understand what these games were because they saw this sort of untapped market. Um, neither game does particularly well. They do okay, I think. But I mean, Dragon Quest, you know, they literally gave the game away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> gave it away for free <laughs> if you subscribe to the magazine. And so Earthbound would have been sort of NOA's like third attempt at JRPG literacy. And I just get the feeling they gave up at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's also funny because like I know uh, Phil Sandhop, who did the localization for Earthbound, um, also worked on the localization for Final Fantasy. And so like there was this sort of feeling that like okay let's do it one more time you know Mm -hmm. um and you have such a different subject matter this time that i can see like i can see the logic there right yeah like they're like well okay maybe like the dragons and fantasy stuff isn't working so well with these guys but like what if we put it in like a what if they're just regular kids and (laughs) (laughs) you know they're using baseball bats and stuff then maybe the americans will understand yeah yeah, well, and it's also set in rural America. So, like, that also was a, one of the ties, I think, that would have tried to make it really resonate with American audiences was, like, the fact that it literally took place there. Makes sense to me. Let's ship it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this wasn't just, you know, I'll give a little bit of context here. This wasn't just some internal project that no one knew about. I mean, this is something that was announced i mean it was previewed in nintendo's own nintendo power magazine it was yeah. actually demonstrated at the consumer electronics show I, I can't recall offhand exactly which one or ones but i mean this is a game that was photographed on the show floor by electronic gaming monthly it's something that they yeah. had out um and it and and also we know from historical records that uh the game was completed the localization it it passed certification yeah uh it was ready to manufacture and they just didn't do it (laughs) yeah i i mean talking to phil sandhop as well like they i know for a fact that they also had like the box art and marketing materials and like it it was ready to like pull the trigger right Um, yeah and i love the way that that phil was talking to about about all of this packaging i mean to me it really felt like they were going all in on this and really trying to treat this like the ultimate nothing is missing RPG experience. You know, if if we're going to try this one more time, if we're going to try to get the Americans into this one more time, you know, we're going to have uh, a poster with all the enemies on it. And we're going to have this really nice thick guidebook and, um, you know, like a double-sided guidebook and you've got this artistic expression at the end where like the pages are ripped out. So it's like, you know, (laughs) you you think you know the story and then 
and then the rest is up to you. I mean, there were there's so much in there, so much love in there. Yeah, that you can feel like. Yeah, well, they. I mean, they even like with that guidebook. Like they actually went and tied it into the game lore because it's supposed to be like that. That other side of it is supposed to be based on great grandfather's diary, which is like an item in the game. Um, so the idea was that like that whole part of the manual was going to be written in character. Um, so yeah, there was so much craft put into it too, that like it, I really wish, I really wish I had access to it because I really want to see like just how much love was put into it. And what does Phil say happened to all of that stuff? I, well, uh, I mean, they didn't really keep a lot of things, uh, back then compared to now. Well, even like, even now I feel like you know, archival could always be better. Um, supposedly, that stuff may or may not be in a shredder. Um, we may never see that stuff. I mean, they could pull it out sometime later and be like, yo, hey, here's like what the original manual is going to look like. But I don't think they ever will. Um, I mean, I my suspicion is that it's, it's possible it technically exists somewhere, right? But it's, yeah. you know, it's maybe in a warehouse. Uh, you know, they might have... The uh, I mean, there there was some notion of of digital at that point. I know from talking to other producers that they, you know, produce the manuals digitally, uh, at least the text. So there might be files somewhere. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's possible. But I but what I'm getting at is that I don't think that Nintendo as a company is likely to put in the resources to go hunting for something just for what's going to end up being like a good tweet or something. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to is like effort and response, right? Like yeah. you're going to obviously make a lot of Earthbound fans happy, but like that's still, I mean, even with all of like, it was just trending a couple days ago too. Um, they added four new titles onto their like SNES online and people were tweeting about Earthbound so much that it started trending. Um, <laughs> as but, in where's earthbound is in it's oh yeah. yeah oh yeah they're like why not just put this game on here so that we can play it uh <laughs> on switch but yeah no like there's i think that it would get like a pretty big response but probably mostly just from like the hardcore fans and everybody else would probably be like what is what is this what are you showing me right now and nintendo famously is all about making the hardcore earthbound fans happy oh yeah Absolutely. I mean, just look at Mother 3. Like, we've only been trying for 15 years. Oh, God, it's been 15 years. <laughs> oh, no. But actually, uh, you know, I think this is kind of an important topic to bring up. And, it, and it's something that you do, you know, document in this film is that uh, Mother really at this point has transcended being video games and is more of a a fan community right yes. it's it's uh and and i don't think you know this film happens without uh this community which i i, I believe you're a part of in some way <laughs> yeah um that's actually how i kind of got started to it like getting into making this film um i pretty much grew up uh on starman.net as like uh which is the the earthbound like fan forums um, they had a huge community of people who were like making hacks, um, like their own custom games in it and like were making fan art and doing archival stuff. And like one of the things that there was like a huge gap on was sort of the history of Earthbound Beginnings as far as like where all of the prototypes were because one of them had disappeared off the face of the earth for like 14 years. Um, and so that was something that I really wanted to like dig into and be like, I wonder if I can find Phil Sandhop. And so I just interviewed him in a coffee shop um, after finding him through various like internet searches. And I ended up like getting to hear just for like an hour and a half or so, like him talk about the process. Um, originally all of this stuff was just going to be put on the website. And then we realized just how big the story was and like really wanted to find a way to interview those people in person, like the owners of the prototypes and Phil and uh, Matt Alderman, who was one of the testers for it and really just like hear their stories too. 
Um, but yeah, I think as far as like the community goes, the, the I mean, there's there's also another film that's in development. Uh, the folks at Fangamer have been working on it pretty hard is uh, Earthbound USA, which should hopefully be coming out sometime soon-ish. And don't worry, folks, I'm in that one too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that goes especially into like the history of trying to localize Mother 3. It's sort of like a Starman.net story in a way. Wait, um, it goes into 3 also? It goes in it goes into them or sorry, it goes into them trying to get a localization for Mother 3. Got it. Okay. Um I should clarify. Yeah. Because um, when when they spoke to me, oh, what, 6 years ago? <laughs> at, <this> point, <laughs> um, at the time, literally no one on the crew had played 3, which <laughs> blew my mind because I'm like guys you know they, they they this game that you love so much that you're making a documentary about they made a, a, a sequel yeah <laughs> you could, made another one, you could, there's another <laughs> one you could play it I, it's, it's I, the best it's the best one also secretly god I gave Reed Young so much crap for not having played Earthbound Beginnings ever wow he um, hasn't I've well, played no, that game I mean, like five times. So it's he's finally hard <laughs> he finally beat it like a year ago, I think. Um, but like, there was a point where it became such a big running joke that uh, we started taking donations at Camp Fan Gamer, their like convention that they ran a few times, and the donation was like for every dollar or something like that. I think he had to play one minute of Earthbound <laughs> Beginnings. Um, <laughs> And so most of it was just him running through Duncan's factory as we like try to like point from the audience like the directions that he should go to try and navigate <laughs> the like labyrinth that is that that dungeon. I think this kind of illustrates really well how much this has moved from video game to just cultural like community and, and culture because yeah someone is making a documentary who hadn't played all of the games because, you know, the at, at a certain point, maybe the game becomes less important than the uh, the culture around the game for a lot of these people. Yeah, well, I think, like, Earthbound just, like, as a series, all of those games hit, like, a really specific tone and a really specific vibe right away. Um so what I found is that there are, there have been a lot of people that I've interacted with that have played maybe like the first few, like maybe up to like Tucson in the Super Nintendo release and then would just not play anymore or never get around to finishing it, but would engage like as a, as like really strong members of the community just because they got so into people talking about the game that like, they sort of built a bond with these people that led to the creation of more like fan content. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's I really feel cool. a little called out right now too, because that's exactly what I did the first time I played Earthbound. <laughs> I did eventually finish it, but the first time I made it, I think I've, I made it farther than Tucson, but I, I, you know, I, I definitely didn't finish it the first time, but I still felt like I got it. Like I understood that this game is cool and why it's cool and, yeah. and interesting and funny and all of that stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I feel like that's kind of the bottleneck for a lot of people. There's like for Tucson, Tucson is definitely the bottleneck for earthbound initially trying to get people into it. That's usually when they drop off. And then Duncan's factory is a really big part of earthbound for NES. That is just hard to get people past just because it's a really gnarly place to navigate. Um, but I think also the graveyard is the first like difficulty spike. And so I've seen a lot of people be like, yeah, I went to try and save Pippi and then I got destroyed by some zombies and I <laughs> never, never picked it up again. <laughs> well, and the other part too, and you got, you guys talk about this in the film a bunch too, but it really seems like a huge portion of the community did not come from actually playing you know, any of the mother games originally. They came from Super Smash Brothers. Yes. I I mean, I'll this is a bit of a self call out is that like all of these games except for Mother 3 are older than me. Um so I also was like Smash Brothers was the first time I learned about NES and like I didn't really make the connection of what Earthbound was until probably around around maybe the time that like Melee or or Brawl were out already. Um but yeah, like that that was something that I even I 
got in that way. And I think that that's not uncommon, like just for, not even just for Ness in Super Smash Brothers, but I mean, I had never played Ice Climbers when Ice <laughs> Climbers was in yeah. Super Smash Brothers. So it's not like, I think Nintendo does that pretty often, you know, reintroducing people to their old characters. And it's the reason that some of these characters are at all relevant. Yeah, today. Mr. Damon Watch and yeah. Rob. Like. <laughs> I'm the old one here. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, mean I, I, ice climbers. I was like, oh yeah, those idiots. You know, like, <laughs> I, my cousin had that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also know that like a lot of the basis for like my starting point, I think, in the history of learning about this game was from the stuff that you wrote for Lost Levels. Um, yeah, and and there's actually a big part of uh, the documentary about that. And actually, I do I do want to clear up. I'm not the author of that article. Oh uh, yes, I sorry, I should have. Yes, that is important. Yeah, so um, it was uh, Jonathan Worth who was sort of on my team. But um, yeah, for those who don't know, I had a website um, sort of launched my career in a lot of weird ways called Lost Levels uh, that was specifically about unreleased games and. Um, with a big focus on the NES, just because that's kind of where the community came from that that we started this website with. And uh, Earthbound is not something that we had specifically tracked down and, and preserved or anything like that. But um, we uh, we were always interested in uh, this notion that uh, people in the collector community had that. Uh, the English version on the internet was fake. Uh, the, the prototype ROM was uh, put together um, by a ROM hacker in the yeah. late 90s uh, and then uh, sold in, in, in some, as some sort of elaborate prank. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, so we, we tracked down actually Phil Sandhop, who you interviewed for the film. We talked to him way back in, 2004 or something like that and he was yeah. able to confirm when we showed him screenshots and things like that 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 was definitely his work that is something that is really funny about this process is that even now when prototypes make it online or like people post about how they have one the immediate reaction especially from like the community i found too has been like oh that's not real there can't possibly be another one, you know, where like uh, I know Matt Alderman tried to sell his on eBay back with, like in, I think, 2009. And he got his listing taken down because people were reporting it. Um, and like his account got hacked, I think. And like a bunch of people on Starman.net didn't believe that it was real. Um, even the one that was like found recently, we had to go through like pretty... Uh, like I, I actually met with Jacob Christopher in person because, like, I think our film covers like the process of finding that prototype. Um, but we basically verified it from our experiences on this film as legit, and then he ended up still getting a lot of flack for it. Uh, and uh, the untold story is that another one came up recently because it walked right into my store. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And oh unfortunately, God, yeah. also walked out of my store. But um, I had someone come in who had no idea what they had. They had bought some stuff at a garage sale. Uh, a lot of it had uh, like Nintendo um, barcodes on it that they would put on the copies that, you know, belong to the sort of like gameplay counselor area. Um, and then there was a, you know, a prototype in with that that uh, the guy selling actually kind of thought was just garbage. He's like, I don't know, it's just this like hacked up board. What is this thing? <laughs> um, and it's yet another copy of the English version <laughs> of uh, Earthbound. And unfortunately, he ended up selling it to someone else. But, um, you know, when she posted up that she had that, um, I had, you know, because I had been talking about it too. I had people who were interested in buying it. They're like, well, do you know it's real? Is it you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. it's, they don't, <laughs> yes, yes, of course it's real. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of my, like, I will say that I think one of my biggest regrets so far has been that like our involvement with the film uh, in that, like 
prototype that Jacob found led to a pretty notable price hike from what I've understood of <laughs> prototypes. Um, I think like the highest I had seen prior to that sale was like 2000. Um, and he ended up selling it for like eight, eight grand. Um, so like, I, I think that there's a weird now that like, there is a certain amount of like demand for it. Now that there is like content, about it and it's like especially as the community has gotten more traction too that like people really really want these things now now i think we should pause here and and kind of backtrack on on what it is we're talking about so um there are physical copies of this game that never came out that would be called the legitimate because they came from uh nintendo's office internally like the romps were burned at their lab or whatever there's uh, what like six now? Bones? Is oh that about God! Right? There's I have a whole folder <laughs> on my phone of photos of them, some of which have not been like made public, right? Um, but there's we've found there's more than six. Okay, um, there's quite getting, a few. <laughs> there's like at, I think there's something like nine or ten now. So that is probably the most common EEPROM cartridge <laughs> for the idea. So, but, but I mean, these things, you know, they're, they're things that were made internally at Nintendo for various reasons. Um, I would suspect that some of them would be uh, product focus groups because they did a lot of that at this time. They would bring in kids to sit down and, and actually play a game that hasn't come out yet just to get their, their feedback. Yeah. Um, they could have been made uh to use you know as trade show demonstrations um the the uh what you refer to as the tk69 cart because that's what it says on the label uh i suspect and 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 i think phil sandhop even kind of backs me up on this this is something that was mailed from nintendo of america to nintendo canada yes uh to evaluate if maybe they wanted to manufacture some copies and sell locally over there so like these are things that that were made internally for internal use that just kind of leaked out uh for a variety of reasons oh actually like a salesman sample i think is another sort of documented use of an earthbound cartridge uh i think the um you probably know the term Jolly Rancher was the guy who found a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, he found yeah. two of them at a garage sale in the Hamptons. Right. And and I think that garage sale was from someone who did like regional sales for Nintendo, so that's yeah. something that he could have had to like, you know, show Walmart buyers or whatever what Nintendo had coming out. There's a lot of yeah. reasons for these internal cartridges to exist and um and Nintendo of America specifically was just kind of a little loose back in the in that time with security. Yeah, I um like with the uh, Jolly Rancher ones. I know that those two prototypes were found in the same sale that like Power Fest was found at. Right. Um, and like this, there was like a Star Fox weekend jacket, and there was like a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, I also know that like Matt Alderman actually like has gone on record and said that like I think somebody stole a copy of like final fantasy three out of someone's car at one point and that was around the time that like in the super nintendo era that they were like really gonna lock down the security um and even then like i still like people were still able to take them home there was like a sign in sign out checkout system yeah i mean Um, matt even says in the film he's like they know I checked it out. That's still, you know, on record somewhere. So <laughs> if they ever ask for it back. <laughs> yeah. Know. And I know a lot of the other ones too were like people that like, like with Matt, right? He went and tried to play through the game to like find typos. And I've heard of uh, like one or two other ones that were from the same process. Um, so like there was a certain amount of these made for the sake of testing it too. That like the side effect of that, I think, is that almost all of them have the what is effectively the final version rom on it um but it's also uh you know it's still kind of cool to see it in person you know like the physical cartridge with the like laser cut opening and everything so yeah um i I actually do have this distinct memory that that i've almost feel kind of bad about uh, uh during the making of this film uh where so you interviewed me and then uh, we went and played 
uh, Ruse cartridge. Yes. Which yeah, he had on the brought. big LCD or like the big LED screen at the yeah, right Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, I think you had me on camera and you were asking me like, so do you like feel anything? Because like that's a real <laughs> earth on in front of you. And I'm just like, no. That sounds like that sounds like something Evan would ask. Like, <laughs> Maybe it was Evan, yeah. Because to me, to me, okay. Like my perspective is that these, this isn't something that was, uh, if it was like Etoy's personal copy, right? Like if it, yeah. it was something that had like a provenance of being related to the creation of this game that I love, yeah. Um, then yeah, this physical object might have some meaning to me. But the reality is that when we're looking at these, it's like there's a lab somewhere at Nintendo where a lab person burns ROMs off a server because they need a copy of a game, you know? So like, to me, this is no different than, you know, someone burning a CDR of an album or something. Like it's, it's just like, it's, it doesn't It's a little cooler than that, but yeah. Uh, Sort of. (laughs) Like I, I, I think I've also come around that way on it too. Cause like, oh, so that that'll save you thousands of dollars. if you. Think. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I remember like, uh, Archon who runs the, uh, art of Nintendo power, uh, Twitter account or whatever, found right. a prototype of the like super Nintendo earthbound. Um, that was an earlier version than the final. Um, it looked like it had like a, a rough draft, uh, direct translation rather than like a, a like full localization on it and so Mm -hmm. a lot of like the assets were still the original version because they had like you know the red cross logo and stuff like that that they had to remove um but even then i remember like going through and like looking at that and then being like oh yeah that's pretty cool (laughs) you know like (laughs) like i didn't really think too much about it being like this massive big thing and i know that like our kind of like excited about it and played through i think most of it on stream but like yeah it was i definitely have sort of not soured but like i've tempered my reactions quite a bit well and i think you've you've had a a similar if if smaller experience to what both kelsey and i have had which is once you've handled in our case thousands yeah the, the the physical object itself just loses meaning it's really you know the the soul of it is is the data that's on there yeah and and especially once you've seen source code like once you once you've been able to see source for any game you realize what you can get off of a prototype is just i mean it's very barely scratching the surface of what the full story is there god i would i would want to see the source code for earthbound so bad uh we we i mean i guess i'm just gonna say this a little bit early we do have some pieces of mother two uh, that we'll talk about soon yeah i had tomato look at them it's just from the localization process so we'll we'll have an article on that on gamehistory.org in that's exciting coming months um so yeah i mean let's you know you 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 set off to make this documentary you track down uh i mean we mentioned phil sandhop yeah um and you actually got to go to his house and and speak to him which is very cool yeah, well, we actually, uh, funny enough, we ended up actually like interviewing him at his workplace, ah. um, just like in a conference room. But yeah, well, it was, it was a very nice room. It looked very homey. Yeah, well, it was it was like we sat down and we interviewed him for like five hours. Oh my god! Yeah, wow. it was it was intense. Like we had, I think we all went through like a, a good number of water bottles and just like you know we tried to pour over like everything. Um, mostly just because, you know, when you're traveling to do an in-person interview, you only have so much time. And I know that Phil was like sort of a wellspring of knowledge, not just about like Earthbound, but also about like the early Nintendo gameplay counselor days. And like, um, I know that like he told us a little bit about SimCity and which also was unreleased NES game. Um, Wait, you didn't you didn't tell me what Phil said about SimCity? Well, Phil, I think the thing that Phil said about SimCity was that it didn't like that the performance wasn't great on it. Oh, that's true. Which yeah, <laughs> that's um, correct. But I do remember Christian getting really, really uh, excited about hearing about SimCity for any reason, you know. Um, yeah, Christian, of course, being your. Uh, well, the producer, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the um, movie, and who ended up purchasing 
uh, an authentic SimCity NES prototype cartridge similar yes. to these Earthbound ones we were talking about. Yeah, which funny enough was like, I remember him. Like, I remember him showing it to me as we were interviewing Jacob about the prototype of Earthbound that we found during the course of the film. So like, yeah, that was one of those things that also happened around the same time that was really, really funny coincidence. Because I know SimCity in Nintendo Power was shown right next to Earthbound yeah. as like an upcoming title. <laughs> um, yeah, it was kind of a transitional period for him. You know, we're go- going into 1991. They're 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 about to focus on the Super Nintendo, and you know they've got these two NES games that are a little bit strange for the system that they end up uh, canceling for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, um, but it, it was really fascinating though. Like listening to Phil talk about all of that stuff and like, especially there's a lot of stuff that we uh, weren't, weren't even able to necessarily fit in the film of like, I think we got his job interview process in there. I know Kelsey uh, managed to get that really, really incredible shot of the job listing, which thank you so much for. Oh yeah. That was fun. I got to go to the <laughs> university of Washington library and use the microfiche machine. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> You don't yeah. get a lot of reasons to do that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. There was there was also like the process of like being one of the original Nintendo gameplay counselors and like answering phone calls for people to give them tips on games and stuff like that. Well, was- and before the, the show, you actually mentioned something that uh, he told you guys about Metroid. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we were <laughs> we were talking about Metroid because he was mentioning that it was his favorite game. And so he took a lot of calls for that. Um and so he knew all of the ins and outs of like, you know, the like the cool cheat codes and stuff like that. And I jokingly said Justin Bailey, um, to which his eyes widened a little bit. And he was like, uh, and we're, we're going to put this on the special features, too. But he was like, yeah, there's a you know, I got this call from a kid and he was like, yeah, I put my name in here. I, ju- I, I just put my name in the password system and. Suddenly I saw Samus without her suit and like I had all of these missiles and like so he went in and he just like tried it over the phone with this kid uh and sure enough like Justin Bailey worked as a code um and they ended up putting that later on I think in like what October 1991 I think was the issue of Nintendo Power um and nobody seemed to know like where it came from but it i mean yeah it's just it came from this kid that called in and phil picked it up and like god it was fascinating so you know in addition to going into how the game was localized you talked to phil you talked to matt alderman who did testing on the game and had his own cartridge we mentioned him a little bit earlier um you went kind of hardcore on just figuring out how the rom got on the internet and you ended up finding you know not only the person who originally had this cartridge but then uh you know the person who was essentially responsible for uh for digitizing that cartridge and yeah putting it onto the internet yeah um a lot of the like a lot of the history for especially like just this game in general but like also in the film um it's sort of following the tk69 cartridge the one that was sent up to canada um to see if they wanted to localize it um basically it ended up like at a secondhand store and a guy picked it up and like uh from there there was just this like exchanging this like line of people who managed to have it and right in the middle there um neo demi force which was a team that like traditionally did localizations like fan localizations of games ended up being able to dump it and make it work and then leaked it online basically for people to play. Um, And so we really thought it was important to track down, especially like that cartridge and like follow its history. We ended up getting every single owner of that prototype with exception of Kenny Brooks, who we're still trying to find. Kenny. (sighs) We left him a seat at the uh, initial screening that we had at Portland retro, like we, <laughs> we sent him, we sent him mail. Um, we have not heard back. And I don't think at this point that we ever will, but God, I'm so, I'm still miffed about that. Well, what's frustrating is that Kenny 
commented on your crowdfunding campaign. Oh, yeah. No, he sent us a message on Kickstarter and was like, (laughs) why haven't you interviewed me yet? And then we replied almost immediately. And then we never heard back. Okay. Um, Yeah. But why haven't you interviewed him? Well... Just a man in the shadows that disappeared. I mean, thankfully, though, like the story there is like we had the person who owned it prior to Kenny and after Kenny. And also we had Steve uh, from Neo Demiforce who like basically like we pretty much built our story around Kenny's ownership of the prototype without actually interviewing Kenny um because basically all he did was like flip it right he just bought it and then he sold it for more later and he charged money for them to dump it yeah and that's actually for for me anyway and, and hopefully other people that is an interesting moment in history because i don't know i i believe that earthbound is the first time that uh an unreleased game was identified uh as having you know value yeah um and then arrangements were made and negotiations i should say (laughs) even were made um to sort of liberate the data from the cartridge uh off of the original artifact to the detriment of its value this is the first time that there was a like crowdfunding campaign yeah. <laughs> or something like this. This is the first time that I know of that the owner of a cartridge was uh, exchanged the data from their cartridge uh, for money, which is something that, um, you know, is a part of my story even where uh, a lot of unreleased games um, that are on the internet, essentially money was exchanged with a collector to copy their cartridge without yeah. selling the cartridge. And it, it all kind of goes back to, uh, to this mysterious uh, Kenny Brooks who we can't find. Yeah. I mean, I like, I've even gone as far as to like, we, we looked up some of the old like rec games, video classic uh, news group posts, um, which thankfully I, I think are still available via Google groups. Um so I was able to like sift through all of these posts from like back in, in the late nineties of like uh, e-bounding from starman.net posting like, Hey, we're trying to raise money for this or like uh, please get in contact with us so that we can, you know, dump the prototype or like people arguing about whether or not it had value or like whether or not it was real. Um, it, it is the same argument that you will read whenever a prototype comes up you will read the same argument in like Facebook comments now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, i like, it should be noted that it is absolutely possible to make a fake prototype. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's those I are just, yeah. I mean, I could, I could do it. Yeah. This, at this point you and I could make a fake earthbound very easily. Yeah. Um, and like, I, that is kind of like a, a somewhat legitimate fear, but like when it comes to the, the data, it really is just a matter of like, Oh, I have a physical copy that is made using an EP-ROM board that has EP-ROMs on it, and like that is what makes it cool. Because usually that data, unless it's like specifically uh, actively different, is not really going to hold much more value than a digital ROM. Yeah, and it's I don't know. For me, reflecting on this film as I'm watching it, I'm just like, thank God that someone got this one early. Yeah. Right. Because the amount of money that gets exchanged for this same concept these days. Oh yeah. Is we're not talking, you know, $400 anymore, which by the way, at that time was ridiculous because yeah, that's what Kenny charged to dump yeah. the ROM to be it, like $400. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then he sold it for a thousand. <laughs> he, so he bought it for one twenty five. Yes. And he ended up making uh 1400 in revenue. So like, you know, twelve seven twelve seven fifty in profit. Not yeah. bad. Not bad. Which Kenny. I guess nowadays is not as bad as like Jacobs, because Jacob bought it at a garage sale for five dollars. I still <laughs> feel bad for that lady. Like uh yeah, but it's I think ended up making like yeah, like an eight grand profit. 
um, or close to it. Yeah, but I mean, it's different to buy something at a garage sale and then sell it than to have something and charge someone for the data yeah. on it. I mean, those are two totally separate things. But yeah, I mean, to Frank's point, it's it's nice that this happened when that data was determined to be worth $400 because, yeah, I mean, I cannot even imagine what, because people would crowdfund up to any amount if we were- well, and- finding you now you know <laughs> you were there you know what i went through with sim city oh yeah yeah <laughs> and god i i remember the sim city like especially because that all happened like at once yeah it was kind of at the same time as a that was a weird show there's been <laughs> someone uh someone floating around on twitter it's i think it's kind of over now because i think you know cooler heads have sort of prevailed over the the enthusiasts but there was someone trying to charge something like fifteen thousand dollars to dump the data on a super mario kart prototype I hate that and I hate uh, that so much yeah and and i think you know the people who have kind of been around this community for a while had to be like no that is the most ridiculous amount of money i've ever heard of nothing is worth that <laughs> yeah know? well if the because we were talking about like do you think that earthbound beginnings would have come out had the rom not leaked online and i think absolutely not like i think yeah. nintendo has made money off of that leak um i think they literally put the rom from the internet but i'm famous for saying stuff like that so. <laughs> oh yeah well i mean there are no there's no difference like right. in the data well, at but, all. Like, but we also know we also know from their I, I don't know if we've had a chance to discuss this or not but uh there we we know from uh some of those data leaks uh the checksums of the yes. final roms and yeah. so we know that the version of Earthbound that's on the internet that appears to be on probably all of these cartridges is actually the final ROM that was uh, in a state where they were ready to manufacture it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I th- I think that there's like, there was this question, right, of like whether or not it would come out if the leak hadn't happened. And I, I do still think absolutely not. But I also think that had that prototype not been scooped up early also, that it wouldn't have released... And then also it would have been exclusive to those prototypes. Um, no, nah, I would have figured it out, but it would have been awful. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, I would have gotten that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just like imagining what those would have like cost It would have been a SimCity It would have been a couple SimCities. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, think. <laughs> I mean, it depends because, you know, you, it's hard to say what the mother community would look like yeah well i mean the mother community's trajectory like it definitely like rallying to try and get that release for the game boy color was something that like really brought people together for a while um but i still think that like mother 3 was the big push for the community too so like who knows honestly yeah and that's that's an interesting thing to talk about for a second is that this is a series with three games and a gigantic fan community and essentially only the middle of the three games <laughs> was properly released in English. Yeah, which for any series other than this I think would be like a bizarre occurrence um especially if there's like continuity between them um which like for mother as a series there is like you know the antagonists kind of transition throughout the series but like this i think this series was interesting in the sense that you could release the sequel just as the first game in a series and i don't think anyone would have noticed yeah and it's kind of like final fantasy they skipped two of them right they yeah. went from one to four and no one noticed because it's not you know straight <laughs> continuity um so I just want to make sure we cover while we still got time that um, you traveled to Japan for a couple uh, interesting interviews in, in this documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so around the time that like the prototype was first being found here in Portland and I was like running around trying to verify like its legitimacy and all that, like I ended up, we were thinking about other things that we could do to really add some extra like cool content and one of the things that we really wanted to do was to try and meet with keichi suzuki uh the composer for the first two games um and he ended up (laughs) replying to us um 
and I woke up at like three, three in the morning or something like that was when I got it in my inbox. And so, yeah, we ended up going to Japan to interview him about the process of composing music for the game. Um, which was really cool. Cause he got to play some of like his demos, um, from the original recordings of it, like before it was put into the computer's chiptune. Um, and there was like all of, I think like the vocals for that, there's one, he released it as a, as a, the lost Suzuki tapes volume two, um, which has a version of all that I needed was you, which was on the soundtrack for mother, um, where he is singing the vocals in English. Um, and, yeah, and the, this is this is on an album that is commercially available. In case you're a Mother fan, yes, doesn't know this. I, actually, I believe that he's got Mother tracks on two compilations of his. Yes, um, yeah. the Lost Suzuki tapes, Volume One and Volume Two, have Mother tracks. Although I think Volume One just has the eight melodies on it, if that I recall. Right. Yeah. Um, and the eight melodies it's also on Volume Two, so you can grab it there. Um, what I will say though is that uh, the fascinating thing with the All That I Needed Was You demo was that um those vocals ended up being used on the mother music revisited album that he just released a couple months ago um (laughs) as like the primary vocal track for the new version of all that i needed was you um which i don't think a lot of people have figured out but it's mostly just from hearing it and then comparing it with the other version i was like these are the same (laughs) you just took your vocals from like 1988 and threw them on here and that, you know, the the fact that there were vocals was actually, I mean, that's kind of an interesting, weird part of the original Mother is that they produced a soundtrack album with vocalists, I believe, in the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I suspect it's because they're like, well, we're making a game about, you know, America. So there should be like English lyrics being sung by native English speakers. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there's like, there have also been a lot of uh, like trying to find some of those vocalists. Like I know Catherine Warwick, uh, people were trying to find for like years who did like, I, I would say a majority of the like really iconic vocals on some of the more popular tracks. Um, and I like, I've since I know I fairly certain I know like how to contact her. I just have never gotten a response back. Film's um, done. You're done. Film's done. It's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no more discussing this game. You're done, Bones. Yeah. Um, I That's actually very helpful to hear that back because, like, I have gone as far as to, like, work with Mother Forever, which is a, a Mother, like, Earthbound archival website to, like, try and keep up to date with the prototypes. And, like, I just need to take a breather. <laughs> <laughs> I just need a break. <laughs> Well, luckily you 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 worked in a medium that has an endpoint. It is the release of the film. Yes. You don't have like a YouTube channel that you should update or whatever. You've 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 accomplished what you set out to do. Yes. And we've managed to like end up getting it shown in like a formal theater and like it has a rating from the MPA, which is really cool. Um and like yeah, no, it's very exciting. I think at this point, all we need to do is pretty much just finish the special features and then make those like blue, Blu-ray and DVDs and just ship them off. Like, we're really getting to the end there, which is exciting. So, in the meantime, where can people uh, find out more about the movie and uh, I think even stream it right now? Right? Yeah. Um, so we currently have the film up on Vimeo. Um, it's on Vimeo on demand. Uh, you can buy or rent, um, and that also like you can find that stuff at either our website MotherEarth.com or um, our Twitter account at Mother to Earth MV. Um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram, but we don't really use those super often comparatively. Same. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but also at the mother earth.com that has our, our store where you can pre-order either, um, you know, physical copies or some of our merch that we made for the sake of the Kickstarter and stuff like that, uh, too. So, Yeah. Bones, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. It's been a privilege. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour, brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter, at Game History Hour, or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Music